This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. She is Associate Professor of Church History and Latino Church Studies at Azusa Pacific University in Azusa, California. I spoke with her on June 22, 2007, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of public radio station KPCC in Pasadena, California. This interview is included in our show, Reviving Sister Amy. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Okay. Well, congratulations. Thank you. So are you feeling kind of having all-day sickness or just morning? No, it's the morning. Mm-hmm. It's the morning. So I have to be real. I usually have fruit and yeah. a piece of bread, very light. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exciting. It is. So, it is. should be should be fun. Uh-huh. So when will the baby come? Uh, we're going in September 7th. Okay. Wow. It's very exciting. Okay. I think... Um, we're ready to go. It's great to talk to you again. I was just listening um, to the conversation we had out there a year ago, mm-hmm. and that yeah. was really fun to listen to again. And, um, you know, what I want to do with this, with an hour on Amy Semple McPherson is not uh, kind of retrace her biography so okay. much as say, you know, why is there this enduring and, in fact, this new interest in her? And what does she tell us about the nature of Pentecostalism? Um, okay. And, you know, what are some of the issues? And I'm, I'm interviewing you and um, Anthea Butler. Oh, okay. Okay. Sort of, so as two women <laughs> yeah. who are scholars yeah. and participants, in some sense, in this legacy of Amy Sumpler. So, so to try to understand it from the inside and in, in religious right. and theological and spiritual terms. Okay. And um and so so let's just do that. Let's kinda of, so I want so even as we talk about her, I want to invite you to say what that means for the present, you know, or what it means for you. I'm really interested also because you worship at a four square church and so you really are directly right. in that lineage. Um that's true. So but um just to start, you actually weren't raised Pentecostal. I wasn't. I was uh, born and raised Catholic, mm-hmm. and I converted in 1985. And I found my way through um, uh, working at a community college to interviewing a pastor of a four-square church right down the block here from oh. from the radio station. Uh-huh. And uh, he, in, in very Pentecostal fashion, said, well, I'll help you with your work, but that's not why you're here. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, you're really here to reconnect with God, but you're, no, you're not going to know that for a few years, but that's okay. <laughs> really? Yeah. And I automatically thought, oh, this is what I've been reading about, but never mind. All right. Um, and uh, it, it was a couple of years later that I figured out that uh, he, was, he was correct, whether it was a, a hunch, whether it was prophetic. I'll leave that up to people to decide, but it was very unusual. And I, I ended up worshiping, and I still worship at that church. At the same church? Oh. Yeah. Um. So, when do do you recall when and how you first heard about Amy Semple McPherson? Was it as a scholar or was it as a worshiper in the Foursquare tradition? It was as uh, uh, an undergrad, hmm. American religious history. She was one of a staple of eccentric religious figures <laughs> that we kind of bypassed on our way through uh, more serious people. Um, she was put in the in the same cast as. Um, televangelists. Mm-hmm. And so whenever they would cast her, they would cast her in terms of, well, we have some precursors to people like Falwell and Robertson and the religious right, their sister Amy, and they, they focus on her flamboyancy and, of course, the controversy surrounding her, her right. kidnapping. Right. And then we just dropped it. And I, I didn't hear anything else about her until I, I joined Foursquare. Hmm. And then what did you hear about her? Well, and then I heard the almost complete opposite, <laughs> that she was this wonderful woman, uh, spirit-filled, pioneer, had some problems, yeah. very generic about what the quote-unquote problems were. But uh, they they venerated her, and they still do. And one of the more interesting things I remember early on as I was deciding about whether to become Foursquare or not was I took a tour of Angelus Temple uh, with some very uh, nice older women who uh, wanted to show me the healing rooms and the crutches and, and the wheelchairs that people had left and uh, wanted to 
promote the the proper legacy right. of Sister Amy, I mm-hmm. guess. And uh, and then we went to visit her grave at uh, Forest Lawn, and uh, the the prayer we prayed at her grave. And one of the uh, people at this tour mentioned that. Well, we, we can focus on the negative, but we rather focus on the positive. So the, the four-square spin, generally, in my opinion, has been to focus on the positive, mm-hmm. on the fact that she founded a movement. It, they, they have tended, they, I don't think they discount the controversies, but they tend not to want to focus on those. So I, I've heard two different, very different variations of who she was. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think this is a question I thought I might ask at the end, but actually I think it, it lends itself r- right here. Um, so, I mean, the the first uh, interpretation you mentioned that you got in a college class of her as being a predecessor of these early televangelists, or of, of televangelists or of people like Falwell and Robertson. I mean, that's also kind of um, the conclusion that you got from a recent PBS documentary about Amy Semple McPherson. Um, but how do you... So is that... Is that is that how you think about her as a predecessor to these kinds of figures in our current life? No, I, I don't think that that's all there is to her. What I, when in, in really reading about her and thinking about her more, um, I think she represents kind of a, a religious innovator, but also someone who, who has all these different conflicts, and she's just very, very human. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time that she's very ecumenical, she can be very nativist and anti-Catholic. <laughs> At the same time that she tries to be interracial, she can be bitterly anti-Mexican, um, depending on what suits her needs for the for the, hmm. per, for the time. Also, just her her real her loneliness and her right. depression and her all the things that kind of made her very human. That's what attracts me to, to Amy. That's it's what attracts so you much, to her. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, uh, because she's real. You know, there, there aren't. I mean, there there are some religious figures whose personal life have been laid open this this broadly before mm-hmm. the public. But generally it's viewed as a negative. It's viewed as something that was overcome, that God and his grace has seen beyond that. But uh, her, her as a woman, as a single mother, as divorced, mm-hmm. as someone who kind of exuded this quiet sexuality when women just were not supposed to be sexual, unless they were a different type of woman, mm-hmm. it, was, it was very unique, very unique. And so I'm attracted to her to her humanness more than uh, what she represents as a political or a media figure. Okay. Well, let's talk about her <clears throat> as a spiritual figure, as um, okay. a player in those early years of the Pentecostal movement. You have talked about what you see as a real creative energy in the early decades mm-hmm. of the Pentecostal movement. How do you see Amy Semple McPherson figuring in that picture? Well, I think the the boldness to just harness on this theological message of Pentecostalism onto mass media, mm-hmm. and and since that has been like kind of the, the number one theme of people who study her to study her in that realm, that is certainly true. There's nobody the the illustrated sermon you think about today, the the kind of over the top evangelical message of harnessing everything to media. Yeah, it, it, she is really a precursor to all of that. That is true. Um, and she was the first the woman, not just the first religious broadcaster, the first right. woman to get a license with the FCC to start her radio yes. station. Uh-huh. Yes, Ex- extremely bold and uh-huh. extremely interesting in the way she would she would just uh, be very brash about seeking publicity. Mm-hmm. You know, it just was it, it seemed to be very un evangelical. You know, if you're talking about this <laughs> kind of evangelical gentility, yes, that women were supposed to even today, women are supposed to, to kind of border themselves in with this genteel idea of who they are, mm-hmm. uh, she just wouldn't have any of that. And so I find that to be very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and what else? I mean, there there is that. That jumps out at people. What else do you see? I think also the, um, the fact that she managed to marry social concern and Pentecostalism mm-hmm. early on in her, in her mission, because she had, as you know, come out of the Salvation Army. Yeah. Um, the the ability to wed those two things is something that I view Pentecostalism is at its best when it realizes that it's not really in the center of American Christianity. It really operates best at the margins, mm. and it operates best because that's who populates these churches by and large. I think um, the kind of theme that says, you know, she brought Pentecostalism into the mainstream, she did that through media. 
Right. But I wonder what has been lost because she brought it to the mainstream. And so I kind of lament what was lost. So that's part, of, she be- uh, th- so that's part of her legacy for you that is troubling. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I think... Um, Which is interesting because I think for um, outside scholars, that might be one of the parts of her legacy that's most impressive. <laughs> Yeah, well, because it, because it, it makes sense to, to bring this, uh, what I guess outside scholars want to see as a very marginal, poor mm-hmm. group into the mainstream. But uh, in, the, in, in doing so, in her chapters in her life, she just became miserable, you know, and mm-hmm. she, and she right. became much more of a Hollywood political institution in Los Angeles than, uh, than during the Depression, where she said, you know, true Christianity is, is about um, not only to be good, but to do good. And so that that is uh, the message that she inherited from the Salvation Army that I wish more Pentecostals would adhere to today. And from your perspective as a scholar, I mean, one of your um, your emphases as a scholar has been on Latino Pentecostals. Um, it seems to me that she carried forward some interesting strands of those earliest days of Pentecostalism that started to get lost pretty quickly um, as, you know, that, and I'm talking about the, well, first of all, she, she was in Los Angeles still in this multi-ethnic place when she finally founded Angeles Temple. Um, right. But that the the multiracial, I mean, as you're saying, she did bring it into the mainstream, but she her doors, at least from what I've read, seem to always have been open to everyone. Um, to people of any creed and class. Um, and that was not carried forward, even by some of the earliest, uh, the other earliest denominations of Pentecostalism. Is that right? Well, that, that, that is true. That is true. She, she often, um, uh, her doors were open. It was an interracial place. You, you would uh, get reports of things in the magazine and other outside observers at Angeles Temple said that they couldn't believe how multicultural it was. Mm-hmm. And for 1920s, 1930s Los Angeles, that's quite shocking. Which, yeah, right. Um, and uh, I think but I, what I go back to what I mentioned is that it, with all of these figures, especially with, with Amy, since she made it such a, a prominent part of her theological outreach, was that she, she, she couldn't quite temper the tenor of the times, which was really to be anti, anti-minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and how did and, that and manifest could, itself? It- well, for example, well, I guess the, one of the prime examples would be when she was kidnapped. Right. And, um, and in her kidnapping, she was very, uh, well, this could be attributed to just wanting to fight back against anyone who claimed not to believe her story. But the Mexican officials in particular said, we doubt any of this actually occurred. And in her, uh, because she turned up again in Mexico, she turned up right? again. That's mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And her response to that said, "Well, it's very, very funny that you would actually start believing a Mexican right now." Really? So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so as it, it's that, but it's it's that internal tension of, mm-hmm. of of I guess having a heart turned around for people and wanting to do outreach for everyone, but at the same time, when it when it comes to push and shove and and basically having your your empire at stake. To relying on stereotypes mm-hmm. and things like that, and there, there are other examples I could get into, but I mean, essentially, that's part of the of the legacy. And and Foursquare, like the Assemblies of God, and like many other uh, early Pentecostal classical Pentecostal denominations, they kind of abandoned that interracial harmony or that kind of golden era post Azusa Street fairly quickly. And um, it wasn't up until I want to say five or six years ago that uh, Latinos in Foursquare had any. Uh, autonomy with their own supervisors. So for several decades, they were under uh, Anglo supervision, without without a without a voice really? of someone who would speak for their concerns. That's correct. Now, what what kind of surprises me about this too is that um, you know another story that I've read that recurs is is how critical she was, um, especially. Um, in, as I've heard someone say, you know, keeping the Mexican community alive during the Depression with the program she set up to feed people. Oh, that's that's absolutely true. Uh-huh. Her soup kitchens, and I guess you've heard the Anthony Quinn stories yes. about. Um, yeah, I, he's I don't, the one I don't who said, and he used to translate her into Spanish when she that's was right, preaching right. in Los Angeles, right? And uh, her the 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 Pentecostal church that she set up in uh, in Los Angeles is the largest Pentecostal church in in LA at the time, uh, Mission. Mexicana McPherson, you know, which is the Mexican huh. mission McPherson, right? Um, and so that these are these are cr- crucial and critical 
areas for social concern, definitely for Mexicans who were about to be repatriated during that time for the Depression. Um, I guess what I what would have been radical was for her to speak out more on these type of issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, certainly the soup kitchens, the clothing, and things like that, very critical, very critical, but the repatriation still happened. <laughs> and and Mexicans who were taken off the welfare rolls in L.A. County were sent back, whether they were citizens or not. Um, but I guess it would be, I guess, asking too much <laughs> to right. kind of rewrite well, that history and I have know. her speak out on that. Would she have had that power, I guess, although she had so well, much she had power, power to talk was, about. Right. Yeah, well, that's the thing, is that mm-hmm. she had a lot of political power to speak out against evolution, to speak for the progressive era of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, all these pol- progressive politicians in that era at that time. Um, and later on, obviously, with the kind of this crusade to bring America back to its quote-unquote Christian foundation. Mm-hmm. She certainly had the ear of a lot of politicians, but like I said, I think I think it would have been asking a little too much. But certainly I don't want to discount her, um, her crucial um, importance during the Depression era for mm-hmm. Mexicans in L.A. Mm-hmm. And then there is this legacy, which you can't just attribute to her, but which is part of the fact that this this Pentecostal movement that started in Los Angeles just 100 years ago um, spread around the world. I mean, the Foursquare Church alone, I've read, has 50,000 churches, 5 million members in 147 countries. Um, (laughs) The Pope uh, recently, in 2007, had to Mm -hmm. reckon, went to, to Latin America to reckon with how incredibly powerful uh, Pentecostal spirituality has been um, converting Roman Catholics. So many Roman Catholics have converted. And um, I, I just wanted to ask you about that because you are also part of that story and you're helping yeah. to tell that story um, mm-hmm. as a scholar. So, you know, how would you talk to somebody about that as as a part of, um, you know, what Amy Semple McPherson was kind of bringing into the world? I, I think the idea of mission, the idea of it's not just here that you do your church, but you are equipped, and I always talk in that language, you are equipped to go out to spread this message around the world. starts at the beginning, and it keeps going. There are constant appeals to mission even today. Foursquare is five, ten times larger around the world than it is in the United States. And as, as a matter of fact, probably like many other classical Pentecostal denominations in the in the global Foursquare movement, it's growing. In the U.S. market, it is declining or stagnating. Mm-hmm. So that that's very typical. It's typical of the Assemblies of God and probably a couple of other Pentecostal denominations that need to go out. You know, the whole the whole Great Commission idea that that theological anchor is so strong in this movement that you will give more to missions if you're a small little church than you will give to support kind of any local initiative. Mm-hmm. And um, that's definitely a part of a part of her legacy, and that's part of Azusa Street. But this this kind of like twenty five year Pentecostal outburst, if you will, in Los Angeles is that you mean after nineteen oh six Azusa Street? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's got to go out. Mm-hmm. And so you, you see just a barrage of activity uh, throughout the world. Um, Foursquare starts uh, a lot in uh, cent- Central South America. I think Panama oh. is its first. Yeah, Panama is its first uh, outpost. Wasn't one of the the earliest, earliest missions from one of the earliest converts also going to Mexico? Yeah. 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 So that's, it's, it's, it's crucial to, to understand this movement as one that sends out and that keeps doing it. And that we, and that, you know, personally, we are constantly asked to give money to this, to support it because it's still part of the mission. It's still part of what we do, which is to um, support churches and missions around the world. But here's what I'd like to get at as well. I think um, I was interested in the press reporting around the Pope's trip to Latin America, which was, Mm -hmm. you know, which is very explicitly um, in part about kind of reaching out to uh, to that Roman Catholic base, which seems to be which is being eroded um, mostly by Pentecostal spirituality. What I don't think what I don't think journalists knew how to describe or even explain um, was what is that appeal? You know, what okay. is it that is eroding that base that is that is drawing people into this world? I mean, you're talking about the mission, but what is it that is happening then that they take out there? Okay, I think there's about three things that are happening. One of them is that Pentecostalism is kind of an un, un unvarnished, if you will, spirituality. It's embodied. It is 
highly personal and, and very intense. And so for, for people who are used to a kind of hierarchical, uh, traditional liturgical religion, this kind of breaks all boundaries because you don't have mediators anymore. You don't have priests. Um, you don't have priests. Bishops, you don't necessarily uh-huh. even have sacraments. Uh-huh. You just have you and God, and God can work those same miracles that they know about in terms of healing, in terms of other miracles that they that people are used to praying through saints or through Mary for, that they can occur immediately in one's life. Um, so I think the immediacy, the immediate experiential nature of Pentecostalism is an, it's just a powerful magnet for people. Uh, and it's and it kind of breaks with convention. It breaks with tradition. Uh, you don't really have to go through anything to to get to it. Secondly, I think is that there's a very kind of simple, but that Pentecostal churches, uh, aside from the large mega churches, many of of, of which are in Latin America, uh, is they're small. So there's an intimacy. Um, priests in a in a in an average church in Mexico City or or other parts of Latin America. There's thousands of people going to Mass. There are seven to ten Masses every Sunday. And so there's an anonymity that you have just sitting there, being a part of a mm-hmm. like large congregation. In a Pentecostal church in the outskirts of Mexico City where there's like 75 people, or even in East L.A. where there's about 50 people, there's an immediacy in that you know your pastor, and the chances are your pastor's just like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're probably bivocational. They are probably not seminary-educated. And so they f- there's something about the tangibility of reaching out to someone who's just like you that makes it more attractive. Okay. And I guess thirdly is that this idea that, um, uh, going back to the immediacy again, is that Latinos have a sense of empowerment, that they have now taken control of their spirituality. It isn't part of a, of a hierarchical church function. It's me. And I can, I can do with it what I will. So if I want to pray... I can do that. If I want to help out, I can do that. There are more places for me to help out. If I want to become a part of, quote-unquote, the priesthood of all believers, if I want to do that, I can do it immediately. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to wait for training. I don't need to wait for church sanction. I can do it now. And so I think finding a place for Latinos to be who they are, spiritually and otherwise, kind of harness all those things together, that creates a, a, a very exciting picture. And in Latin America, as elsewhere in the globe, and as you described in Los Angeles, in the United States, Mm -hmm. in the earliest years of Pentecostalism, that empowering message, those empowering messages were coming to people on the margins of society who had had no power. That's right. That's right. I mean, if you can, if you can imagine telling someone for the first time who has no health care, who has, who has very little education, who lives on the margins, who is maybe possibly an undocumented person, that if they pray, and they pray right now, God can heal them. That is, that is such an intensely powerful statement to someone on the margins that if they pray, something will happen. The flip side to that, obviously, and I don't know if, uh, and I know this is a part of Latin American Pentecostalism, is that prayer and the power of healing and the power of, of the dynamism of God's interaction with people has now taken on this different turn of God's reciprocity, meaning that, well, if you pray and if you do these certain things, God will not only bless you with health, but he will bless you with abundance, mm-hmm. with prosperity. Mm-hmm. That is also another part of that Latin American message that is catching fire, which which shouldn't be discounted when we think about how global Pentecostalism is growing. It's predominantly growing because of its healing nature mm-hmm. and because of its ability to soothe your material needs. Hmm. Although, I mean, I, and I don't know if you're, if you're imagining this as well, but my understanding also in Latin America is that this empowerment of Pentecostalism allows people, um, not not so much in terms of the prosperity gospel, but just to get on their feet economically, that it helps people overcome addiction, stabilize their family lives, and um, there's that kind of economic stability sometimes that follows. That's right. The the converts uh, in a couple of different countries, Guatemala that I'm aware of, and Colombia, for example, have uh, there's been research done that uh, uh, sociologists and anthropologists have done that have followed families for about five years after conversion and noticed how much money has come into the the family, how the, it is mm-hmm. stabilizing mm-hmm. social mobility. They don't they don't drink anymore. They don't do other things that are viewed as vices anymore. And so, it, it in a very tangible way, is helping them to 
rise up out of the very poor um, classes into kind of a middle-class status. So in Mm -hmm. a sense, it's kind of doing that Calvinist, Weberian thing, (laughs) moving people into the middle class in a very strange way. Yeah, in the Protestant spirit of capitalism, yes. That's right. That's right. It's it's kind of doing that. Mm -hmm. And, And something else we should mention, especially since the larger context of this conversation is Amy Semple McPherson, is mm-hmm. that um, women are some of those, have been some of those marginalized people that also women um, in Guatemala who have had no social standing are hearing that God can speak directly to them, that they can control their destiny, um, that they can be healed through prayer. Um, and so it, I, it almost seems to me, and this is true globally as well, that, uh, that there are many stories of how empowering Pentecostal Christianity is for women. That um, in some ways, this legacy of Amy Semple McPherson, a strong woman who heard the voice of God and followed mm-hmm. and thought big and dreamed big and organized, that that, that that part of her legacy is being picked up in the present um, in faraway places, in ways that it may not be mirrored in this culture. Well, I, I've talked to several uh, Foursquare women who um, uh, are so inspired by the, the notion of, of Sister Amy, and these are Latina women, mm-hmm. who uh, know that in their home countries, they're mostly immigrant, know in their home countries they would not have a voice in Guatemala and in other places in Argentina. But when they immigrate to the United States, they hear this story, and um, they just become excited about the idea that even if they were once divorced, even if they have their own marital problems, even if they're not the best person, they have a dream. They have a dream of wanting to preach. They mm-hmm. want to open a church. They want to be in charge. You know, they, they, they are not um, satisfied with being kind of the handmaiden of, uh, of their uh, pastor husband. They want to do something independently. I think the spirit of independence is a um, very attractive to to uh, Latina women, many of whom have that glass ceiling in almost all denominations, evangelical or otherwise, mm-hmm. who cannot break beyond that glass ceiling of being a senior pastor or being someone who can actually preach aside from teaching. There's all these kind of semantic games people play with what women are actually doing. Right. But there's no question that in Pentecostal churches, women who are more than half of the congregation prophesy, preach, teach. And they do things that would be viewed as unseemly or un, un, theologically unorthodox uh, that they, in, other, in, other, in other settings, in other theological settings. And I think that's just a powerful, it's a powerful message. Now, the, the issue is, do women recognize that that's liberation? Do they recognize that that is a liberating presence? What do you mean by that? Well, I think very often scholars, especially North American feminist scholars, want to see them, want to see Latina women, Pentecostal women, as still being very oppressed mm-hmm. because they're not in the central corridor of power. And my argument has always been, well, they have a different notion of power. Power for Latina women tends to be located in the family. Mm-hmm. It tends to be located in these auxiliary forms of power, which is I may not be running a senior church, and I don't have the purse strings to buy all the equipment I want for church and the furniture and the hymnals, et cetera. But I can preach and teach, and I can live my life fairly clear of any, any type of um, interference from people. And for me, that's empowering. And my family, my husband no longer drinks. You know, my, my, my son who was in gangs is no longer in a gang. So there's these other forms of empowerment that I think North American feminists, especially feminist scholars of religion, need to acknowledge. And I think they are. I mm-hmm. think they are. They, they're, they're coming to see alternate forms of power as equally as liberating and as empowering. So what is the, like, what is, um, the role of women in, the, women in ministry in the current Foursquare Church, the denomination that Amy Semple McPherson founded? My sense is that women are not as present and powerful as one might ex- assume with that kind of uh, f- female founding figure. Well, you'd be correct. Most uh, most of the, for example, the executive council and, and the people who, who run Foursquare are men. I think there's one woman, um, and I don't know that she has a central figure. She's not a central role player. She is uh, someone who's on the board. Uh, there are... As I can tell, I don't see any superintendents uh, in in California anyway that are uh, women. 
I would doubt very much that nationally that number would change very much. There might be one or two somewhere out in the country, but I haven't seen them. If, if, if they're there, they're new. Generally, when you speak of superintendents or people who, who are in charge of certain districts in Foursquare, it tends to be a male, a pastor, a male pastor, and then they kind of bracket in parentheses the wife. Right, so it could right. be somebody, and then it's the wife. Um, they're very much like other uh, classical Pentecostal denominations. Women are usually given churches that are very small to be senior pastors, or they're given churches that are in trouble, <laughs> meaning that they're 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 so small in that they're kind of given this kind of unfortunately this kind of hopeless case where um, they have no money, they have no staff, they have really no congregation, and they're they're put there to kind of build it back up. Or they're given specialized ministries, um, children, mm-hmm. family, mm-hmm. Um, uh, assistance to physically challenged, kind of deaf ministries. Uh, it, it plays on very well, uh, whether one likes it or not, with the whole, the whole idea of what women are good at, okay. <laughs> nurturing. Right. And uh, we may disagree with that, but that's, that, that tends to be the four-square model. So how do you explain that? I think Foursquare, in large part, and especially in the United States, has become pretty much generically evangelical. And so it's kind of harnessed itself onto a, um, a message of a very, a very conservative theological message. Not, not, essentially, it's, it's like evangelical with a Pentecostal, with a sprinkling of Pentecostal spirituality. Right. And, you know, I think you need to explain that for people who are listening, because uh, journalists and sure. in, in our culture tends to conflate these terms Pentecostal and evangelical. Right. But I've heard you say this before, and I've heard yeah. others say this within the Pentecostal movement, that Pentecostalism has lost a lot of its early distinctives, which included an incredible empowerment of women and mm-hmm. uh, theologies of social justice and pacifism, <laughs> that those things have receded as Pentecostals have become more mainstream, which has meant um, becoming less Pentecostal in that original sense and more evangelical, which in your mind is a very, and it is, in fact, historically, a very different tra- way of being Christian. Yes. Well, for me, it, it is. And historically, I think it, it can be argued that it that it's radically different. Mm-hmm. What gen- evangelicalism to me means kind of a a word-based, meaning word, meaning the Bible, a Bible-based kind of propositional faith that focuses on proving Christianity true and, and kind of has set up, historically sets up seminaries and, and other institutes like that to prove itself, to be an apologetic uh, engine to prove the truth of, of various claims of Christianity. And it also, for, for whatever reason, tends to be very rooted in very conservative politics and a very conservative literalist reading of the Bible, which uh, women should be silent and women do not have authority and, um, and things of that nature. And also focuses exclusively in terms of quote-unquote evangelism on Conversion, and so evangelism mm-hmm. has one way to to be viewed here, and so it means conversion. It doesn't necessarily mean social concern, okay. And and it, it almost never does. So this kind of divorcing of um, evangelicals and Pentecostalism, I think I think the two have merged. And so as Pentecostalism, you, you said so it what correctly. What is the contrast been, for you? I mean, what so in contrast to word based. Um, Institution-based, well, in conservative, yeah. socially conservative. How, how do you? What is Pentecostalism to you? Pentecostalism to me is um, spirit-driven. It is something that that moves on on in, in people's hearts, if you will, and it is actualized by God speaking to you about certain things, and you reacting in that way. You reacting towards someone who is feeling poorly about themselves. You're reacting to the social concern you see around you. Um, not divorcing social concern and evangelism. And certainly opening one's eyes more to seeing evangelism as simply not just conversion. And I think that's been that's been a huge problem that I see personally, is that just if that's all it is, then beyond the initial conversion, how do you take care of people? How do you how do you discipline? How do you disciple people? How do you move people into a greater relationship with God if you it's, if all you're concerned with is whether okay. they ever make a statement of faith? Okay. Yeah, and I interrupted you. You were going to say that Not as right. that Pentecostals, um, as that, that there's been this merger, I think that's what you were starting to say. That. 
Yeah, well, that I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see most Pentecostalism, especially Enforcer, which is the one that I know best, mm-hmm. being any any different than generic evangelicalism. Essentially, what 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 I see happening is that they took certain messages from evangelicalism that f- suit their needs, you know. And so, if you want to remove women from the prophetic priestly role, you start emphasizing those passages that say women should not preach, women should not have um, any say. Essentially, that women should not be a, an authority above men. And so those things are taught. The focuses on marriage and family and nurture are taught. So those things take precedent mm-hmm. over any of the liberative early early engine that Amy started in terms of her independence, her spirituality, and her function really as a, as a pioneer of this movement. I have read that, I mean, my sense is that she was not... Not very concerned with theology. I mean, clearly she had a theological basis. She was a preacher. She was she was um, an organizer. Um, but she did grapple with. Uh, sh- she had those Bible verses thrown at her about women staying silent, right. and she did uh, kind of look at all the different kinds of messages there are about women in Scripture, and she found her own ministry validated by statements such as in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. I mean, she did um, She did find what she was doing also to have its basis in the Bible and find that other, that other kind of witness that speaks counter to some of those interpretations you described. Probably more powerful than that, and I don't discount that, is the Joel passage where your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Right, and right. And so if, that, if, that, if that's our, our, our anchor text, aside from all the stuff in Acts, <laughs> which is almost everything, but um, then, then it's hard to discount that. It's hard to discount uh, what – if women can prophesy, then, then what, do we, what do we do with that? Mm-hmm. If, the, if the Spirit falls on all flesh – then what do we do not only with women but with people who are not Christian if the spirit is falling on all flesh? Those are, those are theological questions that I, I think Pentecostalism has wrestled with women for a while, and it'll, it's still wrestling with women. Right. I, I think Pentecostalism theologically needs to wrestle with the rest of it, with mm. the rest of what that statement means because mm. it's a radical statement, and it will. It'll take a generation or so, but it will. And that may be a, a, a kind of um, challenge that the 21st century makes inevitable in the way in a way the 20th may not have. That's right. Mm-hmm. Amos Young has been doing some work on that, hasn't he? Have you? Yes, he has. Oh, I think yes, so. he has. He, he's a, a Pentecostal theologian who really brought it to the forefront with his book. And um, I think it's, it's one of those things we have to argue with. It's, it's living in a pluralistic reality and to some extent, for many, not liking it, but not knowing what to do about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, how you live in that tension, not so much how you change it, you know, mm-hmm. because it's it's debatable whether you can change it at all, but how you live in it. So I think all these complicating questions of gender, of race, of pluralism, they will all be fleshed out. Um, maybe not, hopefully, better than the than the than the first century of American Pentecostalism, but we'll, we'll have to see. I think that is an interesting point, though, that Pentecostalism, by its very nature, may be in a position to wrestle with those kinds of questions creatively and expansively, um, in a way that it may be harder for. Um, evangelical Christianity to um, to kind of take on. Yes, because of its history and because of where it's placed in the world. Be- because it has to wrestle with pluralism if it's in Africa, if it's in mm-hmm. uh, Latin America to a certain extent, with Catholicism, obviously. And if it's in Asia, it has to wrestle with gender. It has to wrestle with race. It has mm-hmm. to wrestle with all these big questions. And it is, it is placed better. It just... Uh, does it have the capacity to? Does it have the theological capacity to to ask these questions? That's that's a question that I haven't had answered yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder. Let's talk about um, other aspects of Latino Pentecostalism presently, or projects that you know about, where you see um, the legacy of Emmy Semple McPherson, or strains of early Pentecostalism she represented, kind of still at work and evolving. And I'm thinking of, for example, the the notion of healing. Um, And I think that's something you talk about a lot as part of really vibrant ministries in the world now. Um, I I think that's... uh really important part of the reach of global Pentecostalism. I think an interesting study that came out a few months ago from Pew mentioned that uh, 49% of 
Pentecostals, as they call them, renewalists, which is Pentecostal slash charismatic. But uh, 49% res- report never speaking in tongues, which is quite astonishing considering so many of these denominations uh, live or die based on that statement right. um, in their in their fundamental truths. But uh, that all of that that a predominant sixty percent believe that the most important part of Pentecostalism is healing. Hmm. And in terms of Latino hmm. Pentecostalism, rather than speaking the, in tongues, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, if if almost half never speak in tongues, right. it's, it would lead you to believe it. It's not even important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that what's important is that I my testimony to you now is healing. My testimony to you isn't speaking in tongues because that may that that's. That is such a, you know, viewed as such an unusual practice, and it is wholly, you know, in, individualized. It's got to happen to you first, and, and the only way you can, you can well yourself up enough to kind of make it a public gift is if you prophesy in public that way. Mm-hmm. That is a very hard thing for people to do. Um, but healing comes to anyone. It's not as, it, it's not as, I, I believe speaking in tongues is easier to compartmentalize. You can kind of shut it off to the side. You can have people do it quietly. You can you can kind of hide it. Healing is hard to hide. Huh. If it happens, it happens. It's much easier to pray for healing than to pray for people to be filled with the Spirit to speak in tongues. It's a difficult. They're two very radically different manifestations. Now for Latinos, I, I don't think healing has ever really stopped. I mean, one of the things that I'm that I've been looking at is that how ethnic churches, not just Latino, but Asian, African, African-American, other racial uh, racial churches, rather, um, how they seem to maintain a more heightened sense of Pentecostal spirituality than Anglo churches. If you go to a, a typical Anglo-Pentecostal church in the United States, for example, it, it seems, again, to be fairly generically evangelical. There's not a lot of prophecy or okay. uh, tongues, et cetera. But if you go to an ethnic church or a racial church, there's a lot of that. There's always prayer for healing. So how do you there explain that, that difference? Uh, well, I'm trying to get my mind around it as well. I think it's because uh, ethnic churches um, are still very much rooted in the, the, the essentials of Pentecostalism. Huh. Why did I become this? Why did I give up whatever I gave up, whether it be Catholicism or anything else? Why did I become this way? It's because God did something tremendous. God did something extraordinary. So I can't really give that up. And so a lot of these are, are, are first-generation Pentecostal. So it's that whole idea of the, the kind of zealousness of the early of early converts. Whereas if you go to a, a, a church that has kind of routinized in mm-hmm. its spirituality, it's just less likely. Either that or it's more compartmentalized. You know, you can do it on Wednesday when there's not that many people around. If you want to, you can pray. You can pray for healing. But we want to keep that on Wednesday. It's also been this move towards becoming more generically evangelical with Pentecostals is to want to be more seeker-sensitive, to want to want to not have to explain these <laughs> to manifestations. To not be in your face. To, yeah, <laughs> to, not, to not scare visitors. By speaking in tongues. <laughs> yes. Okay. By not falling on the floor. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now, and, okay, and I also think that when you talk about healing, and maybe this is the way, for example, that our culture evolves and Pentecostalism evolves. I mean, Amy Semple McPherson yeah. was part of that generation where healing meant somebody walked in, in a, or rolled in in a wheelchair and was supposed to stand up and walk out on their two legs, right? It was that kind of public, right. that physical healing. Yes. But um, when I hear you talk about it and other people talk about healing in the Pentecostal church, um, and especially among people on the margins, it's it's inner work, right, as much as uh, as physical work. That is absolutely true. I think that what we've seen over since Amy, if you want to, if you want to look at like the last you know sixty years of Pentecostalism, is this idea that um, healing takes on many manifestations and many forms. There's kind of the psychological healing. There's emotional healing. Uh, there's there's still physical healing, but it is. It seemed to be as equitable when somebody's giving a testimony to say, well, I just want you to know that I came through this very bad divorce and God's healed me of those emotions because it was very hurtful. That is on par with somebody coming in and saying, you know, I had a bad diagnosis with something. God healed me. I have the x-ray. Here it is. Mm-hmm. You know, so I hear more about emotional and psychological healing than I do about physical healing. And I, and I don't know where that's come from other than this is a much more therapeutic society. Yeah, and so I, th- I think that that's played a, a large part of it, and 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 you know what, those are inner workings, exactly as you said, and it's harder to verify. Right. <laughs> it's just harder. It's, right. it's harder. To, it's a you know, if somebody gets out of a wheelchair, or somebody shows you an X-ray, you're going, wow, that's pretty, that's empirical. Mm-hmm. But if somebody says, well, I've just come through a really bad divorce, and I, it's it's 
the the therapeutic language sounds very much like someone who's just come out of counseling. Right. Um, and so you don't want to discount it, but you want to say, well, that's great. I'm so glad that God healed you that way. But we've lost sense of that other that other physical healing. So I think it's, physical healing has receded in terms of its testimony, which you hear a lot more now in churches are the therapeutic, the emotional, the psychological. And yet, I mean, you've written about Pentecostal groups and projects. What, what's mm-hmm. the one? I'm, I didn't write this down, but Victory... Victory Outreach. Victory Outreach, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is about being there for people who are wounded in every conceivable way. That's correct. In our society, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, this, it's, an anti, uh, it's an anti-drug ministry, anti-gang ministry. And so they, they are still very much rooted in the classical Pentecostal um, form, meaning that uh, you're, one day you're a heroin addict, they'll lay hands on you, pray for you. The next day you don't want any more heroin. Um, and you've heard and those, so those stories? You've, you've seen, yeah. seen them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. dramatically, dramatically. Almost everyone I ever talked to had uh, some kind of um, drug issue or dependency issue in terms of um, uh, they even talk that way in terms of women will talk that way very much in terms of abusive relationships of uh, they couldn't get out of it they couldn't get out of it they kept going home they kept getting beat up and then God told them that this is the last time you're going back home you are now free from this and they had some kind of inner strength to stop that behavior and they went to a shelter for the first time they stood up for the first time so it's all this therapeutic enmeshed with the physical because these are people with multiple levels right of, i mean this um, is where the f- physical and the spiritual and the emotional are not distinguishable exactly. anymore that's right that's right so that's that's very active very thriving and then i think it's obviously because they're they're in the margins these are people who don't have thousands of dollars to go to uh, a camp you know to go to a, to to go uh to drug rehab right you know and they they are not <laughs> They're not animated towards going to 12-step, example. And some of them have come out of 12-step, and I don't want to discount that. But mm-hmm. this immediacy uh, intermeshed with the theological certainty that God is working, uh, again, forms a very powerful message to people, many of whom, if, I've, if I remember correctly, did not have much of a, of a background. They were nominally Catholic, nominally something else, nominally – they were very nominal. So they didn't have strong ties to begin with. But when you offer them something of certainty – and something that is experientially so powerful, it says, now you can actually be free of your addiction. It's it's really a, a very powerful message, and that's predominantly the reason why that movement has grown. And I mean, you know, I'm sure that someone would listen to you and just be very skeptical. Um, it, and I will say that as, some, as a journalist who's looked at this, I mean, there are just... Um, there are so many. This is something that is said of Pentecostalism globally, that it does seem to have this... That there is this remarkable body of testimony, let's say, and and I yeah. think some evidence in there too. I mean, that people have studied of to to where people emerge from addiction, um, mm-hmm. who maybe could not find help any other way. You know, and and those stories are kind of, you know, those stories are um, are so dramatic. And you know, and I was actually thinking about this as I was preparing to interview you, and thinking mm-hmm. about Amy Semple McPherson and how people um, sometimes write off her seriousness by saying, "Well, it was all about showmanship; it was all about the drama and the stage." And then it occurred to me that <laughs> that there's something that happens that Pentecostal experience, um, maybe at its best or at its most um, at its most dramatic, is kind of larger than life, and that there's something magnetic about that, um, that transformative experience, that, that there's mm-hmm. a way in which even that flam- her flamboyance kind of was a strange worldly, <laughs> worldly reflection. I'm kind of grasping for words, but I, I was really struck by this as I was preparing I don't know. Uh, there are, you know, I don't know other realms of life where you, where people normally make claims like this. No. If you can think about it, if you can think about kind of the ordinary things of your day, you know, if, if you've actually come, in, if you encounter something like this, how extraordinary it would be, you know, about yeah. how, how unusual. And usually, our, I think, obviously, our first reaction is to say, well, there's a good explanation for it. Right. <laughs> uh, 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 there's got to be something. And, um, Some rational explanation. Yeah, there's a rational explanation. Yeah. And I think also, too, is that that's Pentecostalism's great genius is to say, well, it it really isn't about explaining it. It's about experiencing it. And if you can at some point understand what it's like to get inside these experiences, 
that's really the only way to uh, counter skepticism. And my obviously my point is not to counter all skepticism because I've I've also seen the the other side of all these things too. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's very unusual to to be a participant observer in these things to kind of to see the things that you know are are kind of odd to see people and to being see things healed that, or to. To see things that to see people being healed, to see to hear prophecy, but particularly healing, because mm-hmm. that's kind of an empirical thing you can't you can't really discount. To see X-rays of stuff like that, and, mm-hmm. uh, to hear people talk about it with a certainty, as if as if it's a concrete reality. And so I I, I what I do in my writing is I try to let people speak for themselves because I've I've kind of dispensed with the idea that I can prove or disprove anything. That's not what I'm in the business of doing, I guess. I think I want to let people speak for themselves, particularly people of color, because um, I think there's some agency, some religious agency and empowerment that comes from telling your own story, mm-hmm. uh, free of the lens of any kind of preset theological notion that it's impossible, it can't happen, it's, you know, it, there's wish fulfillment, there's all these other, there's, there's all kinds of theories as to how this cannot happen. But to let them kind of speak for themselves and say, well, I'm just telling you this is what happened. And I can be quite as incredulous as anybody else, but um, my purpose is to let them speak for themselves. Because I think the power of testimony, the power of creating your own kind of spiritual life story, mm-hmm. uh, that in and of itself is something that I think we have to consider in terms of how these testimonies affect others. Hmm. You know, forgetting the fact that whether it's true or not, you know, because true is one of these empirical categories that's very tough to get around. Yeah. But what does it do to other people to hear this in an informal setting at a house with friends or in a formal setting at church? It it shakes you, you know, into some kind of sense of I'm so glad I'm a part of this because I know it works. It validates you. That's fascinating. That's a fascinating observation. And I have to say um you know, my producers and I came to the Azusa Street Centennial. I saw you there in yeah. early in April. Was it April? Yeah, April yeah, two thousand six. Right. And um, there is, I mean, just the feeling being in those spaces where Pentecostals are gathered together and singing together and praying together. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I was thinking of when I was reading about the Pope in Latin America. Mm. And very clear that he couldn't understand what it was that was drawing people. And he was making kind of rational doctrinal arguments. And I knew that what he was up against um, was in a human sense so magnetic for reasons that you couldn't throw. You could throw all the facts and rationality and doctrine in the world at it. I mean, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but... No, I think I think you're right. I think that's that's part of its well early on with Sister Amy when people were trying to discount her when when uh fundamentalists that whole fundamentalist modernist thing when fundamentalists said this is impossible. She is just she's a shyster essentially, you know, mm-hmm. she's just out to get money, she's a showman, whatever. Um it's this kind of rational propositional idea that says that no, we know what it says. We know what the word says. We know what God is capable of and this is what God wants us to do. Uh, Pentecostalism, it, because of its spirit-led, spirit-driven, spirit-formed reality, says, you know what, well, we know that too, but God takes us in different ways, and sometimes we just can't explain it. We have no idea. I mean, and so you hear these countless stories of how God touches people, and it's it's powerful. I mean, I, I know we have said that often and often again, but I don't know how else to describe it other than to get inside these experiences and to understand that there's no possible way you could have known this. You could have felt this way. You could have had an understanding about people's situation. Or you could have been healed of this if it weren't for something transcendent. You know, your rational mind cannot get around why this is happening. And so that, because this, I think we are people in search of a mystery. We're in search of some kind of transcendence. Yeah. It, it offers us something finally, positive or not. I mean, if, you know, for me it's positive, but I mean, for others it's not. Um, to say, you know, yeah, I can I can get my mind around this some way, you know, and if not my mind, I know that I can be led toward it somehow. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily have to be explained. And the power of it is not to be explained. The power of it is to be experienced. And then I think there's also an argument for um, outsiders, journalists, policymakers, leaders to 
to learn to take that seriously in the sense that it is forming so many people around the globe, right? It's, it's, it's maybe right. half a billion people. Yeah, that's that's what the latest count is. I think I think that's that's really important is to understand that this is um, just as legitimate. You know, if you're if you're if we are living and we definitely are in this pluralistic world, which is very difficult to comprehend and explain, and and how do people get along in in Africa? Pentecostals, Muslims, Anglicans, etc. How do people do this? Is to really le- understand the legitimacy of all these worldviews. Uh, as messy as they are, as difficult as, and as competing as they are for the hearts and souls of people, mm-hmm. is that to, to understand that this is one of these things that really people gravitate towards. Yeah. You know, and it's not rational, and it's not um, strictly a materialist sense of, you know, it helps people get, get back on their feet. It does to a certain extent. But it starts with kind of this wholly individualistic, intensely private feeling. That whole body nobody experience, has, yes, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and it, I think it's, I think that's a, a really important to to kind of see through through journalistic eyes, through policymakers' eyes, that this is a legitimate movement, and then to kind of, to use those older arguments of well, it's just the disinherited, they're looking for something, they can't find it, whatever type of arguments that people use, that we need a new language to describe what's going on here. That all mm-hmm. those other arguments, in my opinion, have not been validated with any type of historical, sociological proof. Hmm. So we're looking at something that needs to be used. You need to use a new language to describe what's going on here, other than these are just poor masses of disinherited people who can't find anything better and who are searching for moral order. Uh, No. (laughs) They are uh, middle class, um, many of them highly educated, um, and they are searching for something because something has happened to them. Right. Which is, I think, a different way of looking at it. What do you think Amy Semple McPherson would say? Um, how would she react if she came back today and could see the Foursquare Church, the International Foursquare Gospel Church, or if she could walk into your Foursquare Church in Pasadena? Yeah. She would, she would like my church. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it represents what she, what she wanted. Uh, and and, and I'll not, I won't put that positive spin on it. I mean, I don't want to be that uh, self-aggrandizing. Um, she would like it because it's multicultural and multiracial, and it appears to be very much in keeping with what she wanted Foursquare to be, missions-oriented and uh, diverse. It would also be um, very much, uh, she would also like it um, probably less so because it doesn't exhibit a lot of social concern. It kind of ran with the. Um, she she with might the be a little that, disappointed in that. She might be a little disappointed uh-huh. there. So on the surface, she might like it. Mm-hmm. Globally, um, I think she'd love Foursquare because it it does what she wanted it to do. She wanted, for example, for higher education, she wanted to to set up Bible training institutes simply to train ministers. She didn't exhibit a lot of interest in higher education in terms of seminary training, and to this day, Foursquare does not have a liberal arts college. Hmm. Um, and the reason the uh, and to my dismay, quite frankly, but the the reason I've heard that is because Sister Amy didn't set it up that way. Huh. Well, Sister Amy's gone, you know, but uh, it doesn't really matter that, that that there is still a a an impetus to make theological training wholly practical, wholly local, and uh, strictly for the training of pastors and ministers, and sim- and not for any other type of intellectual exercise. Do you think she would be happier with the um, social justice element of the global church than the church in Pasadena? Yes. Okay. Yeah, sadly. And, and quite frankly, most Foursquare churches in the United States. Okay. <laughs> um, my, my church is not unique. My church mirrors greatly what the, many of the churches that I've visited and seen across the United States when I've had a chance to visit them. Uh, she would be much happier with the global outreach, with the emphasis on healing, and with the emphasis on social concern. Mm-hmm. So I think globally, her movement is uh, is doing fine. <laughs> okay. Well, I I think this is great. I think we've gotten covered everything we needed to cover. Is there anything else you great. want to say? I mean, I had other questions, but I just it was a great conversation. Is there is there anything we haven't talked about that's important to you? I, I would just like to mention we didn't too much. Is um, part of the reason why I think Amy was so vilified was this kind of subtext of sexuality. Okay. And um, also how that is played out today in terms of women in, in ministry. Uh, single women in ministry, extremely difficult to find single women who pastor. Uh, 
Yeah. Women have to be attached, as it were. <laughs> they have to be married. So the, 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 the whole kind of aura of sexuality is tempered and kind of placed in this proper context of marriage. But Amy, who was, what, divorced twice? Ooh, yeah, and, mm-hmm. you know, widowed once. She had, mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very, very messy. Mm-hmm. Very, very messy uh, stuff. And who was honest about her marital problems and who was honest about being lonely and who, uh, you know, would often talk about in public, talk about, well, how she really wanted a, a mate. That just kind of set off a lot of bells, a lot of alarm <laughs> bells going, you know, this is not good. Mm-hmm. Um, she she kind of she didn't exude this overt sexuality, but just essentially this the sense of being a woman. Oh, she was glamorous. Woman. She was beautiful. She was gla- yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. She was she was Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You know, she was a star. Mm-hmm. And so you can you know that that was meant for women who were secular, who were kind of lost in the world. This was not meant for a founder of a movement. You know, and so she shouldn't be lonely. She shouldn't have want to have 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 wanted to have male companionship. She should have been content. I guess, to run a movement and to be quiet, yeah. right? So, I mean, that's something that I, and I, I hear that a lot resonating with single women today uh, struggling in ministry because um, I work at a seminary. So it's single women today are trying to, they're trying desperately to get married, you know, mm, right. so they can have some kind of legitimacy. Right. And um, I, I mean, I don't think, I don't think Amy was the first, certainly, but I think that whole stamp of, again, this, it's emblematic of the the problems that single women have or divorced women have in Pentecostal denominations where they're, because of their perceived failings or lack of suitability for some reason, has made them less capable of fulfilling their call. Um, So that's that's something we didn't talk about, but I mean, I'd certainly like to just chime in on that. Okay. And as you know, we have we have the website, and it's kind of a multifaceted presentation. It's what it's what's on the sure. radio, what's on the web, and so this is great to talk to you again. Great to talk um, to you. I appreciate it. Blessings on your baby. And, Thank you. Uh, we will. You'll Colleen, I'm sure, and you will email, and uh, you'll know what's happening with all this. And if we have some That'd more be... questions, we'll send them by email as well. I would love. I would love it. This is really great. I'm. I'm pleased to to make a return appearance. Great. Well, thank you so Thanks much. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye, Krista.